don't ask yourself why you're feeling a certain way. Just ask what you're feeling. Just ask what. Because why becomes a judgment. And I think people just don't listen. There need to be silences and you need to give people room to run. My style has gotten better because I've let people talk more. If you make all your points, you leave nothing for the other person to say. You got to ask something and leave something and give them some rope so that they can have some fun instead of trying to be a know-it-all and I want to show you all these things I know. It's like you get to a certain point, maybe you're just confident of going, well, I already know what I know. Now I want to know what you know. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Raman Segal, Recovery Marketer. And I'm Rajiv Sethiyal, the Funny Indian. Raman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we want to feature a conversation between our PNG alumni co-hosts Rajiv Satyal and Brian Tomes, lead pastor at Crossroads Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, from Brian's Crossroads podcast, The Aggressive Life. It was a great conversation that demonstrates the power of seeking to understand from someone who doesn't share the same beliefs as you. With 4th of July right around the corner for us Americans, this shouldn't just be a celebration of our independence, but an honest reflection on who we are and want to be as a nation and a people. Whatever your beliefs are, most folks would agree that the level of division and discord are among the highest many of us have ever experienced. There is a better way from simply passively standing by and retreating to our own echo chambers. And part of the solution is if we just talk more to each other reasonably and listen, really listen, but not just to people who look and think like us. It's about seeking to understand, which was one of the values many of us were taught during our time at P&G. And that's what struck me about this conversation Rajiv had with Brian. For those of you longtime listeners, you might recall that several months ago, we had fellow alumni and longtime guest Kirk Perry return for a conversation with Rajiv on faith. Kirk is an active member of the Crossroads Faith Community, which was co-founded by P&Gers. And when the Crossroads team heard the chat, they actually reached out and asked if they could re-air Rajiv and Kirk's P&G alumni conversation. Their audience enjoyed it so much that Crossroads asked our co-host Rajiv to come on their show. And that's what this conversation is. You can find more of Brian's conversations with many diverse thought leaders by looking up The Aggressive Life wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So this 4th of July week, we hope you'll enjoy Rajiv's conversation on developing a deep sense of curiosity and seeking to understand more from folks that may not share the same beliefs as you. After all, isn't that part of the freedom we should all be celebrating? Enjoy. According to Psychology Today, the average four-year-old laughs 300 times a day. The average 40-year-old only four times. And we wonder why we're stressed out, stretched thin over-medicated, over-listless, over and under anything, healthy, unhealthy, all that stuff. There's a power in laughter, freedom and lightness to counteract all the things that weigh us down. Now, to many of us, we've forgotten how to laugh, but thankfully today we're connecting with the funny man. Rajiv Satyal is a comedian, podcast host, and speaker, Cincinnati-born but L.A.-based. Rajiv is the first person to perform stand-up comedy 
on all seven continents. In his comedy career, he's worked alongside legends like Dave Chappelle, Kevin James, Tim Allen. He's been featured everywhere from NPR to the Wall Street Journal to the TEDx stage. He's got hundreds of millions of views on YouTube. He sold out shows that stretch across the country. Rajiv's TV clean acts make him one of the most versatile comics in the business. And when he's not doing stand-up, he's writing TV ads. He's hosting multiple podcasts. One of them, he gave us the permission to replay not too long ago. We might talk about that as well, a podcast with Kirk Perry and, and him sharing his faith. He's got multiple podcasts. He consults with everyone from Google to the NFL, but he wasn't always a stand-up comic. He spent the first six year of his, years of his career at P&G. And today, we're going to hear that aggressive story and talk with Rajiv about the power of laughter. Welcome to the aggressive life, Rajiv Satyal. Great to be here. First of all, <laughs> tell me, you got laughs on all seven continents, Antarctica? Tell how, how did that work? I have. I did. It was quite something to sail down there. I hitched a ride with 60 Indian doctors. They had chartered a boat, and I went with them. I didn't tell anyone I wasn't a doctor. They just assume when you're Indian. And I performed for the people on the ship and some penguins. So, you know, diverse audience. That is, that's really cool. So what did you ever have a, when, when did you have a goal to be a comedian? I mean, I mean go, being in the corporate world at a buttoned up place, numbers focused like PNG, to doing what you're doing right now, that's, that doesn't seem like a natural iteration or evolution. Why? You know, I think I did kind of go very left brain to right brain, very technical to creative. And I was uh, majoring in pre-med, then I got a degree in engineering. Then when I was at Procter & Gamble, I started in purchasing, then I moved over to marketing, and then I worked at an agency. And it just kind of became more and more creative over time. I don't know. I think there are a lot of us out there who could do a lot of things decently well. And people always say, oh, that's really great. It's not really great because it's hard to focus and find something you want to do. Man, well, that's, I mean, so many of us, we only make career changes when we absolutely have to. And then we kind of stay inside of the same discipline, hoping and thinking we're going to make more money if we build on that expertise. So taking a flyer on a different career like that's pretty impressive. Was there, was there fear you were dealing with? Was there uh, what? A lot of fear. When I moved, actually, my friend Catherine, her brother ran Fiji Water out here in Los Angeles. He was the president of it. And I got a job as a brand manager of Fiji Water, one of two brand managers. And, you know, I worked there for 12 weeks. It wasn't supposed to be an internship. When you say 12 weeks, it sounds like an internship. And it was an I you're fired quit situation. We both went our separate ways amicably, but I didn't have the guts to make the leap without a job. You know, I think just to cut the cord at PNG and move all the way across the country, that's scary stuff, man, even yeah. at the age of 30. Right. No question. And you list Pete Sampras as a as a big force for your career. Why? Well, I have an entire story I've written out that I could read to you, but I don't know if I want to. Well, are, I don't are, think I'm are, are you not good enough to tell the story? You just have to read notes. Is that the way it works for you? That's the way it works for me. You think after <laughs> 17 years of full-time comedy, I'd be able to you know, tell it to you straight up. But it happened a long time ago. It happened in August of 1998. And I this was meter days before I was going to perform stand-up comedy for the first time at Go Bananas Comedy Club in Cincinnati. Yeah, I've been have there. Have you been there? Yeah, I have. Okay. Have you laughed four times when you went? Did you? I, I definitely at least laughed four times, yes. 
That's good. You got your money's worth. So there's no money back guarantee. You, you, you're good to go on that one. And you might be aware that in Cincinnati, in Mason, Ohio, they have one of the world's largest tennis tournaments. Yes. And really one of the biggest on, on the planet. And I was a ball boy there, and I met Pete Sampras when I worked in the player locker room, and I ended up doing my comedy act for him. He was the first person for oh, whom wow. I ever did stand-up comedy before I even got up at Go Bananas two weeks later. He, he asked you, do comedy for me, or you just dropped some lines, and he was like, keep going. How'd that work? There, I mean, there's a, there's a whole story to it, but basically the year before that, in August of 97, it was a particularly dreary week, and usually that's a good time in society. It's hot right August but it had rained it nearly every day and a lot of the top seeds lost in the early rounds and there was one bright spot there was actually the seven foot tall Charlie the tuna mascot goofing around with kids Charlie the tuna it was one of the one of the sponsors there and he was sneaking up behind people and hitting tennis balls and goofing around with kids and I was talking to some of the ball boys a position I held for a couple of years actually and I kissed enough ass to get into an indoor job where I worked in the locker room and my buddy, Neil, he goes to me, he goes, you know what you should do? You should ask Pete Sampras to wear that Charlie costume and go hit tennis balls on center court. Oh, and then he could go. pull the head off and surprise, it's Pete Sampras. <laughs> That's awesome. And I rolled my eyes at him and I told him that was the stupidest thing. And like any guy taunting, you know, Brian, guys taunt you. And he goes, he knew exactly what to say. He goes, I knew you didn't have the balls to say that to Pete. <laughs> and I was like, man, did you just call me chicken? And, you know, like a chicken of the sea tuna. And uh, I had to do it. And it went from there. So, I mean, I, I could tell more of the story, but that's, did, that, that was the genesis of it. Did he do it? Did Sampras put on the suit? He did not. He did not do it. But here's what ended up happening. A few months later, I'm watching ESPN, probably like October of that year, 98, 97 rather. And one of their funny sports commercials comes on, the San Diego Chicken, that mascot, a mascot for the city, is walking around, messing around with people in the studio, sports center, and the chicken goes out to get a drink of water and he pulls the head off and it's Pete Sampras. Oh my gosh. I'm not joking. That is what happened. I felt like Kramer and Seinfeld where he's like, the beach, he stole my idea, Jerry. <laughs> and the phone rings. It's Neil. He goes, did you see that ad? Next year, you're going to have to approach Pete Sampras. I had to wait 10 months. When you're young, that's a very long time. And it went from there. So I walked up to him and I kind of ribbed him for stealing our idea. And he just kind of said, I, I said, well, that's too bad because I was going to put it in my act. He goes, are you a comedian? I go, well, I'm working on being one. He goes, tell me a joke. I go, I need to get my notes. I told him that too, Brian. See, I told him I need to get my notes. And he just goes, oh, you're going to need to be a lot faster than that if you're going to be a comedian. I said, Pete, let me get my notes. I've never even been on stage yet. I went to go get my notes, and I brought them into the uh, training room, a 10-foot by 10-foot space. And I did about 18 minutes of comedy for Pete Sampras when he was the number one ranked player in the world. Did he laugh? He laughed with me. At me, probably at me a little bit more than with uh, me. Uh, we, we had a sports medicine doctor in there, and he started to tell his own jokes. And Pete goes, hey, hey, hang on a second. I'm trying to listen to Rajiv. And that guy was a jerk, and that made, that made the whole thing worth it for me. I'm like, you know what? Pete Sampras needed to hear me and not this other guy. I'm in. Well, I'm glad you said that because I, I was a quasi-tennis fan. when My daughter was playing competitive tennis, and right around the time of Sampras, was there and so I, I would watch the you know the big grand slam tournaments and stuff and it was always surprising to me that at that point the greatest tennis player in the world the most uh, you know most grand slams 
like people just didn't like the guy. He just he just wasn't a very yeah. likable guy. And you look at the people who are there today, like who doesn't like Federer, who doesn't mm-hmm. like you know uh, what's the Spaniard always Nadal and Nadal these guys, always yeah. picking his butt, you know, and, and even Djokovic, <laughs> who's he does it. That's his routine, you know. He b- picks his butt back there, you know, and and Djokovic, who. As at least likable, but Sampras could never figure out how to be liked. You know, he, he's he's very standoffish, and that's why this story is so surprising. I grew up as an Andre Agassi fan, and Agassi mm. was very effusive, and you could go talk to him, and, you know, he was in his world. He was also ranked number one during the 90s, too. But, you know, Pete was was a hard guy to approach, and, and you know, walking up to him was hard, man. It's like you talk about the aggressive life, like being aggressive and getting up there to talk to him. You imagine talking to the prettiest girl in your school when you're a sophomore yeah, in high school. Right. This is 10 times that, man. I got posters of this guy all over my wall, and I'm going to go walk up to him and right. ask him to, like, put on a Charlie the Tuna mascot outfit. That, that was hard to do. And when, he, when, he, when I did that, I pitched him on that idea. He just stared at me and walked out of the room. And it took a lot of charm for me to, I, I think, to get him to, to open up. But when he did, he was he was super cool. I've been really fascinated by stand-up over the last few years because I think what my day job, what I do day job, preacher, teacher, uh, you know, yeah. I do a lot of public speaking. I think of all the different disciplines of speaking, whether it is, you know, a college professor, a motivational speaker, uh, you know, whatever. I, I, I think stand-up comedians have the most for me to learn from in terms of, I think, the demeanor that you have, the way you think through a set where as a college professor, they're just they're just going through their lesson plan, you know, at least the ones that, ones that I had. So I'm really, I'm really fascinated by watching stand-up comedians and I think through the, the preparation process that you all must go under. It's probably similar to uh, some kind of process that I go under. Go, I go through. So tell me, like, your first time getting up, That was that the scariest time, the first time? How did you know how to prepare your notes? All that kind of stuff. I think the scariest is the time you go up after you bomb for the first time, uh, right? Because the first time I killed, I did really well. I was brimming with confidence, Brian. I had just performed for Pete Sampras, my idol, and it went well or well enough. And so I went on there, like, what do I care what, what you know, Bob from Kenwood is going to say? Like, I was, I was up in front of that crowd ready to go, and it was a sold-out crowd. The second time, I bombed. And I think it's because you, the first time you don't really know what you're doing, you're having fun. And so getting up after that, and I think that it's true for any speaker, any performer, is after you have a performance that is not up to par, not up to snuff. And it could be a bomb or it could be like, ah, it just wasn't, I just wasn't there today. I mean, it wasn't bad. I just, I think that's the hardest thing to get up and do it. And, and, and with stand-up comics, you got to make people laugh the entire time, you know, especially when you're on stage. Off stage, people have questions. They want to interview, and, and we tend to be philosophers off stage. But on stage, man, people really want to laugh. And so when you see a funny person talk, you're like, oh, this person should do stand-up. No, because the expectations are totally different. Like mm. if you're a preacher and you're funny, that's great. It's an added bonus. But people are not coming to watch you make them laugh. You're a funny guy. That's right. But if you have to only make them laugh and then attach a message to it, it's a lot different. Yeah, that's probably part of what I'm jealous with you and your craft is you know whether you're doing well or not in real time. And when you're done, you know. I, I don't really know. I, I know that I might have had people laugh a couple times. It's important to have some humor here and there. But sometimes I'm dealing with a topic that is very meaty, very heady, and I get the um, just the deer in headlights look, which is – Different than the board look, 
It's the, yeah. oh my gosh, I'm thinking of things I normally don't think about here. This look they're giving me looks very similar to what I'm bombing. I think I'm just making them making them think about things they haven't thought about before. But still, I get off stage and I'm like, I think, I, I don't know. And you're exactly right about comedy. That's a great thing. We're spoiled. There's a measuring stick, right? It's, all, it's also like any movie you watch. Like you watch a drama, you know, I don't know. Are people enjoying it? Or are they checked out? It's hard to say unless they're weeping actively. And it's very difficult for people to do that even in a movie. But comedies, there's laughs. You can see if people are enjoying it. And that's the great thing is, it, it is but you get addicted to that laugh. And so if you want to move away from it and, and you get to the point where I am, where it's like, I'm looking at my earlier stuff because I'm recording a special and I'm looking at my early setup punch jokes. And they're honestly funnier, even though I'm, it's earlier and I become a better writer later. It's because you're doing like, you're doing setup punch, man. Like you're giving them jokes. Later, when I talk about the birth of my son, it's people are right there. Like you're saying, they're right there. They're paying attention. They're watching. They're, there's some laughs, a lot of smiles, but it's not as funny. At the end of it, though, they feel like they got to know you. And that's kind of interesting because back in the day, we didn't know anything about Rodney Dangerfield and Bob Hope. But these days, people want to know their comics. They want to know who they are. It seems like uh, today when I look at comedians, at least the ones that show up on my on my feed with the little clips, maybe it's just my sick, twisted nature and they're feeding me sick, twisted things. But I'm getting a lot of stuff of, you know, of comedians who are pushing and talking about things that we think shouldn't be talked about. They're saying things that shouldn't be said. Is that a normal thing for comedy right now, or is that just the ones that are showing up on my feed? I'm enjoying them. The ones that are showing up, they must know I'm enjoying them because I play Bill Burr all the way through and the rest of them, the little snippets. Is that a comedy, like, uh, normative thing? And is your comedy like that? I haven't heard a whole sketch of yours. I'm sorry. I should have done that in preparation. That's okay. I haven't listened to all of your sermons. Either, oh, so, we're, we're, so we're offended. Not, not all of them. Not all of them. Look, Bill Burr is on my Mount Rushmore of comics that have influenced me. I mean, if there are, there are four of them, it would be Bill Burr, Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, and rest in peace, Louis C.K. So I would say it's those four that I feel are in that Venn diagram overlap of very successful, very funny, and actually say something. And it's hard to do all three of those things. Yeah. And I love Bill Burr. I think he's fantastic. You know, Dave Chappelle talked about how with with the freedom of speech being clamped down, I don't know how political or not we want to get here, but left, right, wherever we're going with this, he said actually that we have the responsibility as comedians to speak recklessly, to speak recklessly. And if we're not the ones pushing the envelope, who's going to? Because I can't get fired, really. I could kind of maybe get canceled. So if we're not the ones standing up and saying something, you know, people who work at companies, sometimes they may not be able to laugh at a joke at a corporate gig yeah. but, because they're like, oh, well, what if my boss sees me laugh, right? That's laughing versus I'm the one up there telling the joke. That's the difference between comedy and humor. I mean, comedy speaks and humor listens. When somebody has a sense of humor, that just means they can take it in. Just like you have sight and you have sound, you have a sense of humor, you can listen. But if you can speak, you've got something that you can say, that's comedy. I just think that maybe one of the reasons why we don't laugh enough is we're just too darn serious and thoughtful. We just... I don't yeah. know, man. I, I'm trying to cue you up or tee you up. You want to say anything about that? I No, I agree with you totally. I, I think that we um, – it ties back in with your first point, your opening point, Brian, about we don't <laughs> laugh enough. And the way that I look at it, I think we spend so much time either being offended or filtering or whatever and trying to figure out, like you're saying, what other people are thinking of us. And we lose that ability to laugh. Like if, if something happened to you, like you stub your toe on the couch and, and you yell an expletive, and, and I do all the time. 
the the thing is though you're supposed to step outside yourself. Like if you saw that happen in a movie, you would laugh. Right. Right. Like you just think of your movie, your life as a comedy and mm. maybe you'll laugh more. Like we all were the protagonist in our own story and that's fine. But every now and then you have got to laugh at yourself. And I think we've lost that. I don't know why or when, but we've lost that ability to laugh at ourselves. And, and that's, that's dangerous because what do they say? Don't take life too seriously. You'll never get out alive. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to that. Like, and, I, and it's a self lesson. I have to remind myself every day to take my own medicine and, and laugh when something really, you know, stupid happens to me and I get all angry about it. It's like, don't, don't get angry. It just, you're, you're fine. Just laugh. It, it, you can laugh it off and be okay. Your parents were first generation immigrants from India, right? Correct. Yeah, I'm just trying to think through that dynamic as well of you charting the course that you're charting and them being supportive, being not supportive. How do they how do they process that? Very supportive, you know, but there's a difference between supporters and believers. And supporters are people who kind of have to support you. They're your family members, they're your friends, you know, they're, they're, they're in it with you, whether they want to be or not, they're, they're, your well-being is tied to theirs. And they support you. They're going to show up, they're going to, to your point, buy a ticket, sit through the show, all of those things. But belief is something that happens in people's eyes. You can see it after a strong set. And, you know, if you do a 9 out of 10, people are like, whoa, that was really good. It was great. But a 10, they're, they're speechless. They're just struck dumb. And I've had people come up to me like, I knew you were funny. I didn't know you were that good. And, of course, those are my best shows. I've had <laughs> go the other way, too. Uh, but, you know, in, in your best ones, and Steve Martin talks about this in his book, Born Standing Up, you, anybody can have a great night. The key is to make your floor higher, right? To make, to be consistently good every night and to make sure that you've got it. Your, your ceiling can go higher, but your floor should, should not be so low. You should be able to consistently do this. It's your craft oh, I like and, that. And, and, and be able to do that. That that's what's really, so they become believers when they see you and they go, my gosh, you can actually do this. And you have to earn that support. You don't really have to earn like they should support you. They're, they're, they're your family. They're your friend. They should support you. They owe you that, I think. But they don't owe you their belief. They don't owe you their confidence. You have to earn that. Were you the funny kid growing up or did you develop that later? Yes. At the age of nine, uh, there was a kid named Ryan Price in my third grade class and he was really funny. And I told him, I was like, I want to be funny. It was Ryan and Willie and I, and I'm still in touch with Willie and the three of us would hang out. And Ryan's like, you're not funny. You're not going to be funny. That's just not, it's not in the cards. I'm like, no, but I'm going to be funny. And I would read joke books and do all this kind of stuff and whatever. And one day I finally made him laugh with like some very third grade pedestrian joke, but he laughed. And I go, you laughed. And he goes, congratulations, you're now funny. And, and he was just joking around <laughs> or whatever else. But, but it gave me the confidence I needed. And then he moved away and I became the class clown. Yeah, there's probably a sense of power that you have there. I can control this. I can you know, evoke emotion. That had to be pretty intoxicating. It was the same year, you know, months apart from that, uh, you know, our, our class bully, John, you know, he came over to me one day and he's kind of like punches his fist together. And he's like, what's wrong with you today? I was particularly down. I mean, it was usually pretty up. And I go, I don't know, man, I'm just a wimp. That was a big word in the 80s, a wimp. And he looks at me and he just goes, do you fight back when you're picked on? I go, yeah. He goes, then you're not a wimp. And he walked away. And I realized even right then, Brian, I was like, this is a significant moment in my life. The class bully doesn't think I'm a wimp. And that instilled a lot of confidence in me between Ryan and John. 
I don't know, I became a funny guy who was not afraid to mouth off, as my teachers would find out. Boy, that's really interesting. I, I wonder, I wonder if, uh, you're, you're how old, Rajiv? I'm 47. I was born in 1976. So, you know, folks like us, we lived a bit more under the threat of violence um, on the playground. Seeing fights was much more regular than it is today. Uh, I mean, there's certainly bullying today for sure. But I mean, just good old fashioned people getting hit in the face, you know, was was a, a normal occurrence. I've wondered if if being in an environment like that, which, of course, I, I'm not saying we should all be around people to get hit in the face. I'm not I'm not right. saying that. But I'm wondering if being in that sort of environment maybe offers us a, a bit of toughening up that helps us to laugh a bit, a bit, a little bit more and not take everything so seriously where maybe the younger generations, uh, you know, there things are a crisis for them that are not a crisis. I mean, what's a crisis is what's a crisis is when I or my friend I was with was waiting to get picked up at football practice when we were 10 years old and two kids just start beating the snot out of Dale utter that, that that's bullying. That's bullying, yeah. spitting on them. And I'm there like, am I, I'm just kind of happy you're not doing it to me, but I'm not really stepping in to help Dale. Um, I mean, that's that's a cry. That, that's, that's crisis. I just wonder if, because we were around those kind of things, if it's, I don't know, maybe be a bit more resilient when difficult things are said because it's not as bad as getting hit. I don't know. Have you thought about these things at all? Jonathan Haidt talks a lot about this. You know, he's up in New York, and I, I'd follow him into a fire. I mean, of all the people that I think are a North Star for, for his opinions and things that he says, he's a sociologist or psychologist. I've read one or both of his books, I think. And he talks about this. Like, it, it's the kids that were born, you know, and, and came to maybe born in 96, 97. He calls it iGen, the people right after. Well, now they're called Zoomers, I think. And you know, they, they are very fragile. And the thing with human beings is we're anti-fragile. And that's yeah. the thing about jokes is being able to te tease people and roast people. It, it, they can take it. They can take it. They want to be roasted. And you, you roast the ones you love and you rib each other. And we did that as a family. We did that as friends. And we busted on each other relentlessly. We still do. I don't think punching people is a good idea to, to your right, point. I don't right. think that necessarily, but maybe, maybe the threat of it or, or knowing that you can't go too far, but then yeah. that's kind of, we've come full circle now with Chris Rock getting, you know, slapped and Dave Chappelle getting tackled. And there was a woman out in Jersey, you know, she's not that well known or wasn't before this, but someone threw a beer at her, you know, that's, that's pretty dangerous stuff, man. If you're not expecting right. it, someone throws a beer can, I don't know if right. it's a can or a bottle or what it was at your head. Because you just hear the story, like, ah, someone threw a beer. Yeah, someone throws a beer at your head. It's probably going right. to hurt, man. So I think, you know, I, I think that we, we, we have a free speech based society, but we're anti-fragile. And, and the more that we treat ourselves like we're fragile and we're just going to break and fall apart, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, yeah, I've thought a lot about it. Have you seen any studies of um, those of us who grew up in that those previous generations? Are we more or less prone to laugh than the younger generations who are, as you said, fragile. Let's use your words. I'm not judging younger generations here. Is there any, do you know, is one generation more likely to laugh than the other? I don't know for sure. That's a very good question as to whether there have been studies done. I know when I performed at Amherst and then Brown, this is right before the pandemic, maybe a year before the pandemic, actually. And I had all my friends warn me. They're like, you're walking into like a liberal hotbed. You're going to go into like the place where people get canceled. I mean, you're going to Massachusetts and you're going to do your jokes. And like you said, you haven't heard a lot of my sketches and, and sets. I work clean, but I work on the edge, meaning I do talk politics. I do talk religion. I do talk sex, but I just don't swear. And so for me, it's like, 
going in there and doing jokes about religion and race and whatever, people are like, dude, it, you're, you're not going to make it five minutes in. You're, it's it's going to, but I did, I did an hour. In fact, I did more than my contracted time hmm. and, and I picked on everybody. And there was a woman in, in a headscarf, a Muslim woman, you know, and she, I, I made fun of her. You got to make fun of everybody because if you're making fun <laughs> of the white guys and right. the black kids and the brown, right. that you got to make fun of everybody equally. And that's what they want. They want to be included. Oh, it yeah. just depends what the joke is. And at the end of the day, people have to get the sense that you're not mean spirited. You're good natured. If they think that you're being mean spirited, like they're not going to laugh. If they think you're being good natured, they're going to laugh. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I was wondering, you know, I got in, uh, introduced to you through that great podcast that you had with Kirk. Uh, uh, in case you don't know, Rajiv has a number of podcasts. One of them is he does uh, former PNGers who have moved on. And it's for PNG alumni. What are they? What are they doing in their life right now? What's going on? Which is a really rich list because you know, it wasn't too too long ago that the company you wanted to work for not wasn't Apple, wasn't Microsoft. It was PNG. It was like the best of the best wanted PNG. That was probably twenty five years ago, which is not too too long ago. Which means mm-hmm. that uh, C level suite after entrepreneur after entrepreneur has ties back to PNG and has fond memories of being twenty two and having their first, you know, assistant brand manager job and all that kind of stuff. And so he's got a deep well that he's pulling. Which is what's your story? What's going on? It's really a fascinating podcast. So the one with Kirk was about faith in the, in, in the marketplace. And I was like, Kirk's a good friend of mine, and yeah. I've I've thought about having the podcast to talk that, but I've, I've listened to it. I like, I don't need to ever have him on. I just need to, to to talk his faith. I just need to get your permission to play it, and you were very gracious to do that. But the thing I was thinking about the whole time is he was sharing. You were just giving him line to talk and talk about his Christian faith with you as a Hindu, and there wasn't any sense with you of. Oh, I don't stop. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. And, and, and there was, there was a strange openness. I don't know, is openness, curiosity, or just at least uh, non fragility about the topic of somebody else's faith that isn't your faith. That I thought, man, Rajiv is putting on a clinic here for how it is to actually want to hear somebody else talk about something you don't believe in. Where most of us would just want to stop our ears for something that has a voice against us. When you went into that, was that like a pep talk you had to give yourself of, okay, I got to make sure I don't cut them off. Or is this just your persona or is this part of, part of comedy is to be uncomfortable, uh, comfortable with uncomfortable ideas. I just, I would just, I, I think there's something happening in your psyche with that, that we need to somehow bottle and just infuse into the bloodstream of the average American. Wow, that is a really high compliment. I, I I already thought it was a huge compliment that you that you played it and syndicated it to your listeners, but to hear your words, dude, really, it was that, great. It was, free, it was freaking touching. great. It was freaking great. And then when you had an easy out, like, okay, I let him say my, I let you say your piece. Now let's go. You'd ask him another question. Let him, let him do another thing on faith. And it was like it wasn't you were like you were trying to escape it. You were yeah. you were encouraging. I was like, wow, wow. So speak, please. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I that I'm caught off guard by how nice that is. Honestly, I, I really think it's um, it's having a deep curiosity. You know, understanding why people do what they do. What are they doing? I read a Psychology Today article a long time ago. When, when we get down on ourselves and we journal, you know, the the advice was don't ask yourself why you're feeling a certain way. Just ask what you're feeling. Just ask what, you know, because why becomes a judgment and. 
So you just ask Kirk or anyone else, like, what do you believe? And you, you, you go through these, all these different scenarios and you just listen. And I think people just, you know, they don't listen. I, you know, with, I think they covered us in fight club back in 99, where it was like, uh, it's nice to hear someone li- uh, listen. Oh, and then, and then, uh, Elena Bonham Carter's character goes, Oh, you mean instead of waiting for your turn to speak. And I think that's it, that it, there need to be silences and you need to give people room to run. And I think, my interviewing style has gotten better because I've let people talk more. I think if you make all your points, you leave nothing for the other person to say. You got to ask something and leave something and give them some rope so that they can have some fun instead of trying to be a know-it-all and I want to show you all these things I know. It's like you get to a certain point, maybe you're just confident of going, well, I already know what I know. Now I want to know what you know. Yeah, that's something I was impressed with is, uh, you, you sort of mentioned it. We most of us listen long enough, so we've earned the right that now we can speak. And you know, I kept waiting for an appropriate thing for you to, to have done was okay. But you now let me tell you why Hinduism is what everyone should be. You know, that would have been totally fine to do that. It was totally fair. Uh, people, someone like me, would have appreciated to hear that. But that you weren't doing that was like, no, I'm just kind of. I'm not letting you speak, and I'm just curious. I don't. I don't need to have an answer or give my two cents. It was. It was. It was really strong. Thank you. No, that that means a lot. There was a, a man, a Christian man, who had studied with my grandfather over in India, in the northern part of India, and you know, my grandfather was was a semi holy man, and the man wanted to convert from Christianity to Hinduism. And then my grandfather asked him, you know, this is probably back in the '60s when all this was was the rage, and you know, the Beatles and everything else, and he, he asked the man, my grandfather asked him, how much do you know about your faith? How much do you know about Christianity? And the man says, well, not much. And my grandfather says, well, I would encourage you to learn as much as you can about your own faith. And if at that point you feel the need to convert, let me know. But I don't think you should leave something without knowing where you are. And the semi-holy man, was it the Christian guy or your grandfather? My grandfather was the semi-holy man. He was, he kind of, he, he prayed a lot. He had people come to him for advice. He was kind of the old wise man in the village. Okay. But I think most people would leap on the opportunity to convert this guy, a young guy, impressionable, whatever. And, you know, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. People have a different take on that. But I think his counsel was great in that if you're a Christian, learn everything there is about Christianity first and then make a decision as to whether to leave the faith. I don't think you should leave if you don't yeah. know what, what you have. You mentioned a couple of people in your podcast, uh, Kath, Casey and Catherine Basil, who I know. Uh, you mentioned them, Kirk. I mean, you've been around a lot of um, uh, articulate, articulate Christians. What do you find m- makes a for a good Christian conversationalist, and what makes for a bad one? What mm-hmm. makes for a good conversation that? We probably have we got we for sure have more Christians than Hindus listening to our podcast right now, <laughs> and more Muslims and more yeah we for sure do so let's keep on the Christian thing. What what right. what, what what makes us? What's a good conversationalist? A good listener? And what's a bad one? What are some of the pitfalls that we get into? I think the good part is you can feel the energy of someone who really is exhibiting the grace of Christ, right? Someone who really is listening, someone who is trying to understand. You know, my best friend, John, is a devout Christian, and, you know, he makes no bones about the fact that he'd love for me to convert. He really would love that, and we've talked about it many times over the years, and I've said, you know, it's not something I I would do. That said, I mean, we still are best friends this many years later. We don't agree on politics. We don't agree on religion. But we do 
have these deep, very roving conversations where he'll just listen. And he was one of the few that when he would call my house when I was a kid, and I have two brothers and two parents, uh, and you know, whenever anybody would pick up the phone, he would talk to them. You know, he wouldn't just be like, get Rajiv. He'd be like, oh, hey, hey, uh, Mrs. Satyal, how are you? You know, how was your day at school? And, you know, how are the kids doing? And, you know, what's going on with you? And he would talk to them for five, six minutes. And my parents like, wow, he's the one of the few people that really talks to us and listens. And I really think that it is a lot of that. It isn't just preaching and, and saying the same old stuff over and over. I think it's just trying to meet people where they are. And I think, again, too many of us, whether we're Christians or Hindus or anyone else, we just go in with what we want to say. We have our talking points. We have all of our minds made up. And if you disagree with us, you're an idiot. And that's just that's just not going to win too many people over. Yeah, it's pretty rare to be a, you call your best friend, someone you don't share anything with politically or religiously. How can that be? Because we're from the 80s, man. We're born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s. That's how it used to be. And now it's just really hard. I, I yeah. think that the, the strain of politics, politics is the new religion. Yeah. And it has changed a lot, whether it's the woke left or, or the, the MAGA right. They're not traditional liberals and conservatives. I think liberals and conservatives could have reasonable differences and try to figure out some middle ground. And they did. And, you know, we can get into whether that's right, wrong, whatever, and how it got to where we are. But I think that a lot of people on the woke left and the MAGA right, they don't argue in good faith. It's just very hard to have a reasonable conversation with someone who holds such an extreme, maybe not even an extreme point of view, but they're just not going to change their mind. And, and, I, and most traditional conservatives and traditional liberals I know are intellectually curious. And the other people, it's just a cult. Yeah, right, right. I, I'll just do a podcast. Uh, one of the podcasts I listen to is called uh, Pivot. Are you, are you familiar with it? I am. Yeah, is that, that's Scott Galloway and Kara yeah. Swisher, right? Right. It's kind of like a cross-cultural listening experience for me, <laughs> you know, because of a, those right. folks are so, so different than me, especially Kara, uh, just, you know, just very, very different, very, very different beliefs. But it's like, hmm, it, it's not just they have a really interesting take on the news, but they— um, they they have great bandwidth with one another and uh, and 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 I hear like oh so that's what someone on the way left thinks uh, mm-hmm. and how how she talks I would say Kara's on the way left Scott is probably left of center yeah he's just left of center yeah mm-hmm. but they were they got into this discussion on the most recent one I did about gun control and con- comparing America with England. And with Japan, who eliminated their guns and the differences in culture. Scott had some really, really fascinating and probing, penetrating insights, which me as a gun owner, I've got a bunch of guns. I hunt and I just, I like guns. I got a bunch of them. I found really compelling. I was like, hmm, boy, that's that's a real. And I thought, oh, I should send this to X, Y. I should, and I thought, oh, I can't, I, I can't send it to them. They're, they're, they're just, they're, huh. they're just, they're not, they're not up for hearing anything that they, that they don't agree with, not hearing up any way, just can't handle it. And it really bummed me out when I thought about it. like, man, I, I would love yeah. to interact with, uh, about these thoughts with somebody who actually thinks like me and has the same gun collection I have and see what they think. But as I went through my mind, like, okay, who would that be? The people I know who, I, I'm not a, I'm not a massive gun aficionado. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm really not, but, but I have them and I use them. It was hard for me to think about somebody who actually 
has them and uses them, who could have a level-headed discussion without just going, oh, it's, it's a right, it's, it's America, you know? Gosh, whatever, <laughs> man, whatever. Bum me out. I think it's important to engage with people's best arguments. I don't know if Kara Swisher said that or somebody said that. Like, try to think of, and with jokes, it's the same thing, too. I met a guy in, in L.A. the other day, and he's seven foot five. Seven foot five. So what's the wow. question you don't ask him? Don't ask him how tall he is. Everybody asks him that. So try to think of the first and second things that everybody else is saying. And try to think of the third thing. And I think it's exactly right with platitudes too. Well, America, freedom. All right, we got those arguments. Give me the deeper one. Give me give me the thing after that that you believe in your own words. And I think it's it's hard to do that. People just are not, um, I don't know if they don't want to change their mind or what, but they, they're not willing to, to move on it. They, they just don't, I guess they've already made up their mind and that's where they are. I don't mind if you're not willing to change your mind. I mind if you're not willing to hear someone else's mind. <laughs> That's really I, what bothers I, I, me. I could not agree more. I, I was, uh, we did a, a couple days out in Palm Springs, and most of us were left of center uh, all the way to really flaming liberal. And one morning, uh, a guy asked us, and I thought this was a brilliant question. He just goes, okay, on what are you a closet conservative? Like, just give me an issue where That's you go, you know, put on this. And I tell you, Brian, there were people who were deeply Christian. There were people who were pro-gun. There were people who were pro-life. You know, it, it was like a CPAC convention. It just wasn't all the same person. Oh, like they were human beings. Like Chris Rock talked about how he goes, you know, on, on crime, I'm a conservative. On, on prostitution, I'm a liberal. You know, you're kind of like, all right, you know, I'm a human being. I, I, have, I contain multitudes like Walt Whitman. I mean, there's a lot more to it. And if you probe through all of it, gosh, man, there's got to be something where you go, okay, I can kind of see the left's take on this. And, you know, when I volunteered at Mercy South Hospital, I, I listened to a lot of pop, a lot of hip hop, and a lot of the girls there listened to classic rock, the Fox, 94.9 was what it was back then. And I hated that music. I found it so boring and so dull and so drab. For four hours a day, I had to listen to this crap. And one day a song by the Beatles came on. Oh, okay, I know that song. One day a song by the Stones came on. Oh yeah, I know that song too. And then, you know, a Doors song would come on. And then the next day, I'm like, oh, I want to hear that Doors song again. Next thing you know, I'm a full-blown, huge classic rock fan, just yeah. massively just into classic rock, and I still am. It's because I got exposed to something that I – now you'd put on your headphones, and I would never I would never have learned who the guests who were. I would never have gotten into any of the stuff that, that I got into, and I would have missed out on decades of great music. It's because I was forced, to your point about getting hit in the face. I was hit in the face with this music, and I think it's exposing ourselves to different points of view. I mean, otherwise, that's why we're in America. Right. Like, that's, right. that's what's truly great about this country is that in every other country in the world, you have maybe, maybe one city in each country that's diverse. Here, you've got 15 of them. Learn. Go, go learn about other people and other cultures. It's interesting stuff, man. And yeah, otherwise, I said that to a friend of mine. I go, I just, I can't stand when it's just like an entire group of one type of person. He goes, so you hate countries. And I'm like, okay, all right. I guess I hate countries. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. We were talking about open-mindedness. I want to circle back to something you said earlier you talked about your best your best friend you said oh he would love to convert me and and this quote you said you said that's not something i would do that's not something i would do so what do you mean by that because it sounds it sounds close-minded it sounds like there's no sure. argument there's a uh, the, that god could stick his finger in the middle of the room and move a table i, I mean there's got to be 
I'm not. I'm. I'm honestly right now. I'm honestly not trying to convert you, though. I would love that. That that would be an awesome podcast. If what right podcast? now I could have the Hindu comedian <laughs> accept Christ and I baptize him digitally in front of everybody. <laughs> And John, John would be so pissed off after decades of trying to get this to work. John, you suck. Like. You suck. You just don't John. know how to answer the right, ask the right questions. You're not, you're not funny enough. You're not whatever enough. It takes someone like me to get the job done. John, what the hell are you doing? He's a funny. Maybe he gave me too much C.S. Lewis to read. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, what, dude. What it oh my gosh. The C.S. Lewis cult. I don't. Oh my gosh. I, Is that I, where he went wrong? I think so. I think someday someone's gonna actually. Put a committee on me and, and say, wait, 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 wait. You've never finished an entire C.S. Lewis book? No, I find him incredibly meandering and incredibly wordy, and I don't get it. And oh, you cannot be a pastor anymore. Like, I'm sorry, sorry, I don't get it. <laughs> this was this was many years ago that I read Mere Christianity. Look, I, I, I say it's not something I would do, and I leave the door open because you just never know. You just never know. And you know, I do feel like at a certain point, Hindus, you know, we're really wishy-washy. This is the way I describe it. Like, we, we, our religion has been here for 5,000 years. And we, we just believe that all of it can be true. It's the elephant. You've heard that yeah. parable before, I'm sure, where there are different men are feeling, feeling the different parts of an elephant. And there are just different paths and there are different, um, you know, dimensions to things. I think with Einstein, his whole theory of relativity proving that it could be one time here and one time somewhere else. Well, then all bets are off. Then so many things are possible beyond our comprehension. There are 26 dimensions. I'm sure there's a way in which we're all right. And I'm sure that there are probably ways in which we're wrong. I don't dispute the basic tenets of Christianity. And with the more I read about Jesus Christ, you're just kind of like, wow, I mean, there's not anything he said where I'm like, no, but that's wrong. I mean, I, I don't think that there's anything where I, where I poke at it. And, and I, you might have heard that part where I was interviewing Kirk and, and I was talking to my friend Catherine about this. Like, well, what have Christians brought to the table? Aren't they just a bunch of Johnny come lately? It's like, we've been here for thousands of years. And she said, you know, love and grace, th that's really missing from the Eastern religions that, you know, that's not a huge part. I, I just finished a book called Why Buddhism is True. I just finished it. And a lot of it is about non-attachment. And the question becomes, you know, but is that the goal? Do you want to not be attached to things? And he addresses that. And, you know, man, I just think you, you take a little bit from everyone's faith. And I think they're all, we're all right in certain ways. And I'm probably not saying anything that people haven't already said, but that's kind of my, my take on it is the Einstein stuff and the Arby's, you know, Arby's said different is good. So no, I, I don't understand the, the Einstein stuff. Explain that to me. So, you know, when Albert Einstein f discovered the theory of relativity, so many things are possible that we can't even really believe. Like it's one time here. It's literally another time somewhere else. I don't just mean time zones. Like time is measured differently. And that's why when people are like, well, what's the beginning of the universe? I'm like, well, that's before there was time. I don't need to know more than that. I'm good. I got it. Like it's just beyond our comprehension. We're not going to get it. And we're not going to know the answer to this. No one's going to be able to convince me intellectually. But then I have a friend who's a Muslim, Uzzur, and he just says, well, you're missing out on the idea of what it is to know something. I don't know God through my mind. I know God through my soul. Like, I just know that Islam is right. And I said, well, what do you say to John? And I've wanted to get those two guys together for the longest time because they're so funny. They're such good debaters. I would love to get John and Uzzur together and one knows Christianity is right and one knows Islam is right. I don't know. I'm the first one to say I'm, I'm 
you know, I say I'm spiritual, not religious, but then I sound like a woman who says I'm not angry. I'm just upset. <laughs> yeah, it's got, I think the age of um, arguments, I don't mean like emotional arguments, but the age of, well, here's this point and here's that point. I think, I think that stuff's important, but I think that that age is pretty over, at least with the folks I interact with. I think it's mostly now the, where, where's the power? Where, where, where's the power? Is, are there healings here? Are there, are there um, emotional healing, physical healing, healing, spiritual healings? It's like, everyone's got their arguments, but I'm just, I'm just seeing God do more <clears throat> in the things that just can't be explained. I'm just seeing unleashing of that with me. And so that's why I'm like, man, you know, um, there might just be something that happens in the, in the, in the form of a miracle or, or the unexplained, you know, that might, that might get your intention. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's <clears throat> anything that's possible. Uh, we have had members of our family, well, more gone to Buddhist versus Hindu, not, not, yeah, uh, just a cousin, but a good friend of mine converted to Christianity. He's, he was a lifelong Hindu. Hmm. So it happens, man. It, it's, it's not, it's not impossible. And, and I think to close it off and say, there's just no way, no way ever. Um, but then, you know, I mean, but if, you know, John won't convert to Hinduism, so I wouldn't call him closed-minded. I would just say that he found something that works for him. Right. And, and, he and John, the truth. and John would say that too. That's what John say. It's just something I would never do. Would he say that? That's a good question. Uh, I'd have to ask him that, but I don't, I would imagine knowing him as well as I do that if I said, would you ever consider converting out of Christianity? I would imagine he would say, there's no way I would ever do that. Interesting. All right, enough enough spiritual talk. I do this all day. I do spiritual talk all day, every day. I love I came, it. I came on to be with the funny guy, and uh, I'm about, we got to start wrapping this up. I think you're good enough. I think you're good enough to do the lightning round. Some guests, I just don't take them through the lightning round. The lightning round is when I give you a topic, and you got to answer sure. it like, like, like fast. Are you up for the challenge? I am ready like Thor. Let's do the all lightning. All right, here we go. The key to capturing a crowd's attention. Silence. Ooh. First of all, you played by the rules. You answered it quick. One word. I like that a lot. I reserve the right to ask a follow-up question. Talk more about that. What do you mean? What do you mean by, by silent? How, how do you determine to use it? People tune out when they hear a speaker who's very sing-songy, and I think to stop and pause and look them in the eye and be very deliberate with what you're saying. It's much easier to pay attention to that. And I did a political show where my director told me, he goes, you know how you're speaking right now with the script? It's word perfect. Do that on your 20th show. Do that on your 50th show. Because what ends up happening is people start talking like this and they go, um, like, whatever. And then before you know it, they sound like they're not even interested in what they're saying. So play with the four things you could do with your voice. Tone, pitch, speed, volume. Use all of them. Go loud. Go soft. Go faster, go slower, change the tone of what you're saying, change the pitch, go up real high. Jerry Seinfeld's funny because he's always talking up here like that. Am I right? Like, that's a funny register. When you want to be serious, take it down into a lower register. People are going to take you a lot more seriously. You got gravitas. Your voice is one of your best instruments. And if you use these four things, people will pay attention. Yeah, it's it, even just the silence of having the adequate pauses. Uh, Eliminating the ums and the yeahs. I, I, I was developing some young communicators once. And I was at a meeting. I was in a meeting with them. Um, they were giving a presentation. And so, um, 
yeah, man. Um, I walked up on stage. I took a $20 bill. I put it on the thing. I said, you get to keep this $20 bill if you can finish this presentation without saying um. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't last two minutes. And they were, they were done. And they were like, gosh, I can't believe I did. And, and both those guys have mastered it now, though. It's just like I think of the speaker, just one little thing. You master not saying ums. Okay, good. Now we can go to the register and other stuff. That's really good coaching. All right, here that's we go. great. I love I love how you went about that. That's awesome. I, I use the notes function in my phone and I put a tick mark. I was trying to eliminate saying like and I did it. I said it 50 times in a day. And by day seven, I was saying it zero. Right. I forced myself to always take out my phone and mark a tick. You get tired of doing that, right? Well, then right. stop saying like, well, I thought it was a great idea, too. But I heard from others. They thought it was a form of bullying. I, I support it. <laughs> I was like, Come on, man. Uh, I'm not allowed to coach people publicly now. Okay, whatever. Let's just get It could have been worse. You could have masturbated in front of me. <laughs> oh, oh, that was, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's a, I, I need to get a, I need to get a sign on my office. It could have been worse. I could have masturbated in front of him. Yes. That, that resets the bar. We talk about the ceiling and the floor. That's a new floor right there. Just don't go beneath that. <laughs> oh, All right. Gosh. Okay. Comedian, back to lightning round. Comedian that makes you laugh the most. Chris Rock. Career goal that you that you are chasing. I want to host the Oscars. Most important characteristic or skill for a successful comedian to have. You got to be funny. Most aggressive mistake you've made and what you learned from it. Not following up with people once they showed interest, deep insecurity maybe prevented me from, you know, maybe not wanting to bug people or what it is and not being aggressive enough. I think I have a lot of confidence and I think confidence stems from security and arrogance stems from insecurity. But I think there've been times where I didn't follow up and I should have. Great, okay. The last question I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna ask you one more question before this, which something I'm excited to talk about. The last question, just to give you a heads up for it, it's going to be, I ask everybody this, what else do you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? I'm a writer and a performer. I deal in words. I deal in ideas. Comedians are the only people, and this is your point about what else should we talk about. Comedians and preachers, we went to go see Billy Graham speak. I, I went to go see him at Paul Brown Stadium, and I went to a 9-11 memorial and a, and a Billy Graham speech before I even saw the Bengals play there. That's really crazy. That finally even I saw even the though game. being a Christian is something you would never do. You to go right, right, but yeah, I'll right, go see Billy right, Graham right, right, with right, my good, mom. Yeah, good. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. She's like, let's go see Billy Graham speak. Like, this is hilarious, but I would never. Yeah, it's not something I would do. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. but I didn't say I will never do it. I said, it's not something I would do, but yeah, it leaves the door open a little bit, but I, I hear what you're like. So, you know, the, watching this guy speak, you know, this, this great man speak and, you know, comedians, people like that, we're the only people, Brian, you and I, people like us, if I can put myself on your level, which I won't, but I'll just say this, that we can fill a stadium with just our thoughts. There's nothing else like that. You got to hmm. be the Bengals. You got to be the Rolling Stones. You got to play instruments and songs that people can sing along with before you can sell 50,000 tickets. Well, guess what? I mean, Gabriel Iglesias can do it. Russell Peters can do it. Steve Martin did it. There are, there are people out there who can sell 45,000 tickets and, on Billy Graham <laughs> just to hear somebody's thoughts and feelings all it is is a man and a mic they're right. just standing there crazy. talking crazy that's how powerful words can be wow. and that's my message words matter i was having this discussion with the director who directed my political show and we were talking about at what point do you develop character 
And I was like, this is the conversation that people should be having. It shouldn't be sound bites. It should be long form discussions about this kind of thing. Sure. The if guys we could take the conversations higher or deeper, whatever direction, and talk about that stuff. My gosh, man, what a better society that would be instead right. of this person slap that person and this person tackle that person. Yeah, we know that. That's a play-by-play. Give me the color commentary. Right. All right. Anything you want to talk about or we should be talking about that we haven't? And, by the way, this is when to advertise yourself. It's, it's, it's oh. Talk about whatever we're going to talk. No, let's talk deep. I've been asking you stuff, so I would love if you had something stimulating that I can play off of. We can talk about That's great. This is a question that I, I love to ask people. Brian Tome, when did you know you were good at what you do? Yeah, this is a good story. Um, if we're, to, I'm just going to keep it on the speaker level here, the speaker sure. level, and not the leader level. I was on the football team in my high school, and I don't know if homecoming games are as big of a deal in the high school world as they are back in 1983 when I graduated. But they had a, this big thing tradition in my in my high school where the last Friday at the end of the day, they would have all the football players come into the auditorium or come into the gymnasium with their football jerseys on. And during homecoming day, homecoming that day before homecoming, they'd get like four football players to address the student body. And it was really obvious who the first three should be because they were the most popular. They were the most, uh, you know, most respected athletically. Like, real clear, like the th these three, like, definitely have them. But they needed four. And they were like, eh, all right, uh, Tome, let's get, uh, you, we, we do it. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. I'll do it. So, you know, I was last place. They, the cheerleaders picked these people. It's not like they had, had master planning skill about how to organize an event. They just, Put me forth. I wasn't hitting cleanup. And f first three guys said some things. It was all, all fine. And then it came to me. And I basically I basically called out the student body. They were um, – we had been perpetual losers. And no one cared. People were just doing stuff. They didn't care about the assembly, all that stuff, which I understand. But it kind of got under my skin. So I called the whole student body out. And I said, look, you know, what we, what we need from you is we need your support. And if you're not if you're not gonna support us, then I don't know what I said. I I called out. I don't know what I do. Anyway, like the whole place listened. And then I was done. And I didn't think much of it. And the cheerleader said, "Hey, tonight at the bonfire where they throw a dummy of the opposing team into the fire. Think about that. You would take a <laughs> you would take a life size dummy of Plumborough High School with all purple, and then you would throw them into the fire." <laughs> And you would chant, we're going to destroy them. I don't know what we were saying. Are we going to send them to hell? Or I don't know what it was, but this is right. what you would do. High schools would do this in 1983, yeah. and no one was shamed, and no one was threatened. It's just kind of what, what happened. So I said, yeah. hey, would you give the little speech before, and, and then you throw the football guy into the, into the bonfire? And I was like, wow, uh, okay. And so that's that's when I went. Okay, I got something here with my voice here that I've never even thought about. I've never developed, but there's something there. So that that that's the story. Wow, that's great. It's a long time ago. So that's great that you developed it at such an early age and you knew that. Yeah, and then it was just reps, right? Reps, 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 mm -hmm. reps, reps. So there's a lot of people mm -hmm. who have who have just a fantasy to be a speaker in the Christian world and lead a big church and all that stuff. And, and those folks, just many of them want to put in your reps and i just tell them all hey man you're 22 you want to do this you need to just start being with junior high kids and leading bible studies and like doing two three a week and not even preparing yeah. for them just pull them out of your hole 
You know, that's what I used to do. Just like make stuff up, <laughs> but yeah. you've got to, you have to develop your own voice. You've got to get repetition and you've got to, you got to, and that's same. I'm sure it is with comedian world. You, you're, you're, you're doing your craft all the time. And I just don't find many people have the work ethic or the patience. They want to immediately be a star on Instagram, immediately have crowds. And I, I don't think that's the way our craft works. And I actually think in my world anyway, God actually makes a decision to come against you and not give you quick and sudden fame. And if you do happen to squeeze through the cracks, you're always the one that falls and is a public disaster. Always. Mm -hmm. You're so right. To me, the word is compelled. Like what if you're compelled to do it, I'm compelled to write, I'm compelled to speak. And you know, I just I just do it. I, I have to write, I have to get it out and and if you don't have that, you don't have that respect for the craft to figure out, okay, I've written this thing. How do I make it better? Oh, this sentence structure could be better. This could be stronger. I could move this here. If you don't love doing that, well, then I, it's probably not the thing for you. If you just want to get invited to cocktail parties and you know that's your thing, well, then you could do that probably climb a different ladder. This is a very hard ladder to climb. It's a fun ladder to climb, but it, it's full of humiliation yep. and full of a lot of, you know, negativity on your way up. You got to find a way to laugh through it. So how does somebody find you? Because I know a lot of people would love to know more. I appreciate that. Funnyindian.com. Drop me an email. It has all the links to my social media. Probably the biggest one for me is Instagram or just type in Funny Indian in Instagram or LinkedIn or any of those places. And you'll probably track me down, but I do respond to emails and I love when people sign up for my newsletter, but it all starts at funnyindian.com. I do a lot of corporate events. I've given a lot of speeches about humor, about diversity, about innovation, about personal branding, you know, so anything uh, you want to know about, I don't know, 47 years on this earth, working in politics and marketing and engineering in comedy and acting uh, has taught me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're a learned man. Hey, let's remind ourselves here. This is not the interesting life. It's not called the interesting life. It's not called the fascinating thoughts life. It's called the aggressive life. Man, I'll tell you what. There's something you heard here today you have to actually do. Like, if you're way south of four times a day, you need to figure out how to laugh more often. Maybe you're going to actually ask and listen to somebody who thinks something different than you do and aggressively listen instead of aggressively proselytize. What's proselytizing is fine. The right time right place. But what's really not good is when we're just in the habit of just convincing everybody that we're right. Maybe you're going to do that. Let's go out and enjoy our lives and let's change our lives. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Rajiv Sathyal. And I'm still Raman Segal. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.